everyone and welcome back to the Know It All podcast. I'm your host Riley Sue and I'm so excited to get to be joining you guys today for yet another episode. Last week we got into the fascinating and long history of bog bodies, mainly focusing on the bodies that have been found in Northern Europe. We did touch a little bit on the Wendover bog site, or I'm sorry, the Wendover archaeological site. I had so much fun getting to talk with you guys about what you thought of the episode, as well as what you thought about our new soundboard and our new sound overall. I think I've definitely made some improvements. I know there was an echo last week. I almost didn't publish the episode because of it, but always got to show up for y'all. So... I think all of that's fixed. If it's not, as always, please let me know. I do have a correction from last week, though. Uh, I stated in the episode that the Harold Scare woman was still located at the St. Nikolai Church in Vallejo, Denmark, but she's actually now located in the same city, just at their Museum of Culture. If you don't know what the heck I'm talking about and you didn't listen to last week's episode, head on over there after you finish this one and listen to it because it's a good one and... You need to get in on this discussion because I'm really loving talking to you guys about it. I did get some feedback uh, that some people were not into the more corpse and violence intensive kind of content last week. So this week we're going to change periods, we're going to change locations, and we're going to celebrate Women's History Month because that's what it is here in the United States during March. And it's actually International Women's Day, which is the day that this episode drops March 8th. So I think one of the best ways that we can celebrate the ladies and femmes in our lives is to talk about the efforts and the people who got us to where we are today, which is why this week we're going to be discussing the only female U.S. congressperson to ever represent the state of Montana and the United States' very first woman in Congress, Miss Jeanette Rankin. Let's dig in. We got a lot to cover this week. But you already know how we do it over here, so before we dig into her life, we gotta establish a little bit of background and build the world that we're gonna be traipsing around in today. We're gonna begin in the Montana Territory, in the time before it enters into the Union and loses its last name, and at a time where it was an ever-changing and challenging landscape of prospectors and ranchers that were all trying their best to hit it big. Montana's pre-state history is also characterized by a lot of ongoing conflict between settlers and Native American tribes that had long called the forest, mountains, and plains of the state home. And, I mean, it's entirely understandable, because if you've ever visited Montana, it truly feels like you're in another dimension. Like, you're some kind of grubby little demon who somehow snuck their way into a corner of heaven. There's truly something different about the giant sky, the flourishing wildlife, and the bumper stickers every five cars that say, Montana's full, go home, that really makes you feel like you probably don't belong there. Entirely ethereal. As the search for gold in Montana ran its course, boomtowns and mine cities were formed and deserted faster than water ran in the streams. During the 1880s, railroads were built across Montana, which was a really big win at the time because this was also when hard rock mining began in the state, and you have to have an efficient way to move all the stuff that you're digging up. The territory became a part of the Union in 1889, and places like Butte became famous for silver and copper mines. The Anaconda Copper Company was formed and became one of the world's largest copper mining companies, and it had an extreme level of influence on everything in Montana. Maybe they were named Anaconda because they wanted to squeeze all the life and profits out of Montana, but more on them later. On to Jeanette. Nine years before Montana achieved statehood, on June 11, 1880, Jeanette Rankin was born on her parents' ranch near Missoula in the Montana Territory. Her parents were John Rankin, a Scottish-Canadian immigrant and builder, and Olive, a school teacher from New Hampshire. They had originally moved to the territory in search of gold, but established a ranch and became successful business people instead. Jeanette was educated at home and worked on the ranch with her family. Her chores included farm and housework, maintaining machinery, and helping to build things around the property. It was in her upbringing on the frontier in Montana that she said that she first noticed the differences between men and women. 
On the frontier in general and on the ranch, both sexes did the same work and were expected to do what it took to make their homestead successful, but they did not have equal access to the vote. The eldest of seven children, Jeanette took over much of the parenting for her younger siblings due to her mother being both consistently pregnant and falling ill from a thyroid issue. Jeanette even helped take care of her father in 1904 as he was dying of Rocky Mountain spotted fever. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. This isn't Florence Nightingale. Like many women of her time, Jeanette was expected to grow up and be a mother and a wife, and her priming in her childhood highlights that. But she could never picture herself truly fulfilling the role of homemaker and caretaker. Nevertheless, coming from a wealthy family that valued education, she needed to get a college degree to make her more marketable in the marriage department. Though we're later going to get a look at a more mature Jeanette who's living her life as a tenacious and proud suffragist and pacifist, this part of her life, this degree, was just a step on the path that had been previously drawn for her. The major didn't matter much, and it was more important that she showed that she had the discipline and ability to complete it rather than to excel in it. She attended the University of Montana and graduated in 1902 with a degree in biology, a major that she had little interest in and she made it out by the skin of her teeth. In fact, Jeanette was more interested in the social aspects of college than she was in the classroom. She had long brown hair and a lean frame, and there were many people that were after her heart, but not many of them were successful. She maintained that she had no intention of turning out crotch demons like her mother. As always, if you want to see some photos of Jeanette and other things I mentioned in this episode, head over to at knowitallpod on Instagram. There are so many pictures of her, and she's absolutely beautiful, so make sure you take a peek. Of course, the next logical move after college is a career, but not one in biology like you might guess. Because this degree was just part of the process, she moved on to that next step of her predetermined path, teaching. She found her first teaching job in a one-room school near her family ranch, and she hated it. The following year, in 1903, she took a new position teaching in a nearby railroad town, Whitehall. Jeanette much preferred her time in Whitehall over the time in the one-room school. It was there that she met fellow young professionals, attended parties, concerts, and even visited the theater. Though her time wasn't entirely lighthearted. It was here in her time at Whitehall that she experienced something that her brother Wellington would mockingly call her, quote, embarrassment. And at the end of the year, Jeanette's teaching contract was ultimately not renewed. It's not clear what the embarrassment that Jeanette experienced was, and some people insist that she survived an unwanted pregnancy, that it was due to the fact she failed her teacher's exam, that she'd fallen in love with a married man, or even that she carried out an ongoing relationship with a woman. Whatever happened in her time in Whitehall was not only lost to ambiguity, but also a tornado that took out the school shortly after Jeanette left. No matter what the cause was, though, the experience taught Jeanette to be tight-lipped on details about her personal life, and there aren't many intimate details about it from this point forward. After losing her job, Jeanette apprenticed under a seamstress in Missoula and worked to take care of her younger siblings. She even experienced a near-nervous breakdown in this period, but Jeanette wasn't entirely defeated. Instead, a new fire was kindling inside of her, and she felt an even deeper desire than ever to find her way in the world. She wrote in her diary, quote, Go, go, go. It makes no difference where, just so you go, go, go. Remember, at the first opportunity, go. End quote. In 1904, she did just that, visiting an uncle in San Francisco, where she volunteered her time at the Telegraph Tenement House and sparked an interest in social work. She then applied to the New York School of Philanthropy, now a part of the Columbia University School of Social Work, and she was accepted. In New York, she completed her master's degree and spent time with new friends that shared her desires to be different. Here, she met lifelong friends Catherine Anthony and Elizabeth Irwin, a lesbian couple, who took her to heterodoxy in Greenwich Village, a club where the only requirement for entry was that one not be orthodox in his or her opinion, and the motto was, the only taboo is taboo. Sounds frickin' cool. Jeanette loved the club, and she loved getting to spend time with these forward-thinking and vibrant personalities. This is where the morals, values, and missions of her life begin. 
Jeanette graduated in 1909, and this time following her path of education to a job in Washington State as a social worker in Spokane. But I'm going to go so far as to guess that you've already figured out that Jeanette did not fall in love with social work. She was often denied field assignments because of her gender and was instead tasked with caring for children at the children's home. Finding the conditions deplorable and feeling like she had somehow failed by pursuing a career changing diapers and rocking babies, roles that she had been running from her entire life, Jeanette knew something had to give. This couldn't be her forever, so she quit. Alright, so social work in Washington wasn't the calling for Jeanette, but she did find something else out west that was calling to her. That was being a reform advocate. After leaving her job, she moved to Seattle and began attending classes in political science, public speaking, and economics, working as a seamstress to support herself all the while. She then saw an advertisement asking for volunteers to promote women's suffrage, and that changed her life. Jeanette gave speeches on street corners and quickly fell in love with the work that she was doing to get the vote for women. In 1910, the efforts were successful, and women in Washington state were granted the right to vote, the fifth state in the union to do so. But this is just the beginning for Jeanette. Soon she became a lobbyist and then a field secretary for the National American Women's Suffrage Association, and she was traveling all over the country hoping to advocate for women and find the perspective that they would bring to voting. She visited at least 15 states, and Jeanette learned the power of organization and steadiness for a cause. She championed the right to vote for women in other states like Arizona, Kansas, and Oregon, and finally in her home state of Montana. She was actually the first woman to speak before the Montana State Legislature when she delivered a speech to them in 1911, urging the enfranchisement of female voters. To honor her presence at the state capitol, the legislators were actually banned from smoking and spittoons were removed from the room for the evening. They were also told to not swear and they all chipped in to buy her a bouquet of violets. But even with all the chivalry, it would still take some time for the suffrage bill to get through in Montana. But by using grassroots organizations to promote her campaigns for suffrage in both Montana and New York, Jeanette and the NAWSA were eventually successful, and in 1914, women in Montana were granted the right to vote. Jeanette was buzzing with energy, and coming straight off her suffrage win, there was little anyone could do to stop her. At some point, Jeanette realized that there was an entire untapped and unheard voice, not only in the polls and at a state level in Montana, but also in Washington, D.C. She needed to not only give the women of the U.S. a voice, but it needed to be heard and timing was on her side. Montana's population had been increasing, and now it was to the point that the state now qualified for two representatives, elected at large instead of by districts, meaning that everyone would just vote for two people, and that's who would win. All Jeanette would have to do to win a seat was to come in second place. On July 13, 1916, she declared her candidacy as a Republican running for a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. She wasn't the only woman putting her name on a ballot in the United States that year, nor was she the most popular. Much of the nation's focus was on Kansas, where almost 300 women were on the ballot, in every level of government. Few people outside of Montana even knew about Jeanette's run. Remember the Anaconda Copper Company that I mentioned earlier? Well, not only did they run much of the industry and own most of the property around the state, they had control of almost all of the state's politics and the newspapers. They deliberately ignored her campaign, but that was no issue for Jeanette. She traveled all over Montana, connecting with voters in small groups and in remote parts of the state. She would drive her forward, take trains, and travel on horseback to get anywhere she knew there were voters. With her eyes set on Washington and her plan to get there via second place, she laid it out simply. Anyone can still vote for the man that they see as best fit for the job, but why not give her the second vote? Her platform also resonated with the people, running for nationwide suffrage, child welfare legislation, and alcohol prohibition. A lifelong pacifist, she ran on issues that were close to home for the people of her state talking to them about issues with disease, struggles between large companies and the workers, and the impending presence of war in Europe, as well as much more. 
In November 1916, election results trickled in, and news eventually came that Jeanette was the first woman to win a seat in Congress. She came in second by 7,600 votes and beat the third-place candidate by 6,000. And when asked about her election, she said that it was through the support of women that she was able to win her campaign. If she hadn't been known nationwide, then she certainly was now, with reporters and photographers flocking to Montana to find out more. They examined everything in her life, from her hair and eye color, her clothes, and even what recipes she was known for. Requests for product endorsements and proposals for marriage came pouring in. And always ready to jump at an opportunity, Jeanette actually arranged a speaking deal to give a national lecture series for $500 a speech, which would be almost $14,000 today. But unfortunately for Jeanette, this money-making venture was stopped before it even started, when President Woodrow Wilson called Congress into session eight months early to address Germany's submarine warfare and the attacks on American merchant ships. On April 2, 1917, Jeanette Rankin was honored at a breakfast with other suffragists before her first day on Capitol Hill. There, the women discussed the conflict and the stirrings of war in Europe, and their fears that the country would be pulled into the center of it. The ladies also reminded Jeanette that it would be a bad look for the cause of suffrage if she were to vote against the war. It would make women seem as if they were weak and unable to make tough political decisions that were required for a spot in office. They urged her to be cautious and advised that a no vote could make their cause seem unpatriotic. Politely, Jeanette listened, but she made no promises on how she would be voting. She arrived in the Capitol that day to be sworn in with the other members of the 65th Congress, and a commenter wrote that she looked more like a mature bird rather than a strong-minded female. When her name was called, everyone in chambers rose to their feet and applauded her, and she was the first and lone woman in Congress. One poised opposite of 435 others, one to represent an entire half of the population. I can't imagine what isolation she must have felt at times. Later that day, President Wilson met with Congress in a special joint session where he asked them to make the world safe for democracy and declare war on Germany. On April 5th, the House began its debates on the war resolution. Jeanette sat out of the debates and chose to listen, a decision that she said she later regretted. There were other members of the House that also opposed going to war, and they announced it that day on the House floor. On the morning of April 6th, it was time to vote on the war resolution, and Jeanette didn't cast her vote until the second roll call. One of her colleagues, former Speaker Joseph G. Cannon of Illinois, approached her as she sat in the chamber and leaned over, saying, quote, Little woman, you cannot afford not to vote. You represent the womanhood of the country in American Congress. I shall not advise you how to vote, but you should vote one way or another, as your conscience dictates. End quote. The clerk called the names of the second roll call, and Jeanette cast her vote, violating House rules by giving a brief yet striking speech, stating, quote, I want to stand by my country, but I cannot vote for war. I vote no, end quote. The final tally was 373 votes for the war to 50 against it. And even though there were others who had voted against the war, and even though they were all men, Jeanette was vilified in the press. Back in Montana, the Helena Independent said she was, quote, a dagger in the hands of the German propagandists, a dupe of the Kaiser, a member of the Hun army in the United States, and a crying schoolgirl, end quote. I think we got it after the first part, but they really kept going for it. Even her friends and colleagues at the NAWSA distanced themselves from her, saying that she was not representing the suffragists, she instead represents Montana. Now, see, Helena, that's a way harsher burn, and it took like half the time to say. Even though she opposed U.S. involvement in the war, Jeanette still ensured that the troops had what they needed to fight. And as the war effort intensified and the country mobilized, officials looked to Montana for its coal and copper mines to supply the war. But this all came to a screeching halt when in June 1917, 168 miners were killed in a fire in a mine near Butte, Montana, owned by, you guessed it, the Anaconda Copper Mining Company. The remaining workers were now on strike, demanding safer conditions. 
This event is actually called the Granite Mountain Speculator Mine Disaster, and I'm thinking I'm going to do a little mini episode on this because it's actually the largest mine disaster in U.S. history, and it's just incredibly tragic. But that's all for another time. After two months of failed mediation with the company, Jeanette denounced Anaconda on the House floor, and then again in Butte. She concluded that in order to maintain the war efforts, the federal government would need to take control of the mines, and she introduced legislation to do so. She testified before Congress and spoke on how the ruthless company owned the entire state, and Congress failed to do anything to take control of the situation. And worse yet, while Jeanette gained more support from working-class voters, any ties or peace between her and the powerful Anaconda Corporation had been destroyed. She championed for workers' rights in other areas as well. After a letter alerted her to poor conditions at the Bureau of Engraving and Printing in the Treasury Department in Washington, D.C., where women were made to work 16-hour shifts, Jeanette investigated the situation herself. She sort of went undercover. She went with another member of Congress, and she pretended to be a constituent of that colleague, taking the opportunity to observe the women that were working while the Treasury officials concentrated on the person that they thought was a member of Congress. Jeanette described what she saw as nerve-wracking and hired an investigator to study the Bureau's treatment of its staff in greater detail. That investigator reported that the Bureau's female employees performed physically demanding and dangerous labor over long hours while being both verbally and physically harassed by their male managers. Jeanette publicized the report and met with President Wilson about the findings, and as a result, the Treasury Secretary called a special committee to investigate. After nearly 200 women showed up to testify to their working conditions, the secretary immediately instituted an eight-hour workday at the Bureau. The war also impacted how Rankin worked to get her women's suffrage amendment heard in the House. In April 1917, she testified before the Senate Women's Suffrage Committee, that was, mind you, entirely men, and that fall she endorsed a proposal for a House Committee on Women's Suffrage, which would allow the suffrage measures to bypass the Judiciary Committee, which had previously killed other voting rights legislation. After the new committee was established in September 1917, they rolled out a constitutional amendment for women's suffrage in January 1918, and Jeanette opened a debate on the House floor and served as a manager. She asked the other members of the House, quote, How shall we explain to them the meaning of democracy if the same Congress that voted for war to make the world safe for democracy refuses to give this small measure of democracy to the women of our country, end quote. The resolution, which required a two-thirds vote to make it into the Senate, narrowly passed at 274 to 136, with 17 members not voting. This was the first time that a women's suffrage measure had ever passed in either chamber of Congress, but this did later die in the Senate. I feel that it's important here to talk about something that I don't really like about Jeanette and that I think it's really important to include in our histories about her. In some of her efforts to make suffrage happen, Jeanette took part in racism that existed during this period. And I don't think it's okay to excuse racism at any time, whether it's casual for the period, hard air quotes there, guys, moral relativism just isn't going to happen here. Racism is wrong, whether you're born in 2080, 1980, 1880, 1780, so on and so forth. There's no saying, it was just a different time, or that's just how it was. It shouldn't have been like that, and it's a very disappointing reality that though we can value and honor Jeanette's legacy as our first congresswoman, she also said some shitty shit. I mean, when she was asked if she understood that giving women the vote meant that she was also giving black women the vote, she's said to have responded, well, you can keep black women out of the polls the same way you keep black men out of the polls. It's not cool, and though it seems like she had an eventual change of heart, or at least camaraderie with black people during the 1960s and 70s, she did say that, and she sucks for saying it. Ultimately, though, a year later, Congress passed the same suffrage resolution by an overwhelming margin, and it was sent to the states. The 19th Amendment was ratified and added to the Constitution in August of 1920. Women had finally won the right to vote nationally. 
But things are hardly over for Jeanette, and Anaconda is here to squeeze Montana again, this time convincing the legislature to replace the at-large system that had helped to elect Jeanette in favor of a district system. The two newly drawn districts divided the state into a western and eastern side, but Jeanette was not shocked. Her comments on the matter were that there were more than one way to keep a woman out of Congress, and this was obviously Anaconda's attempt at that. Instead of running for re-election in the House, though, Jeanette announced her candidacy for U.S. Senate in July 1918. Running with the slogan, Win the War First, she promised to help the current presidential administration to more efficiently prosecute the war. In a major blow to her campaign, the powerful Montana Nonpartisan League, which advocated to limit the power of banks and corporations, called on its members to vote in the Democratic primary rather than the Republican primary. And despite efforts to recruit more female voters, Jeanette lost the Republican primary by less than 2,000 votes. But knock her down nine times, she gets up ten. Jeanette instead won the nomination of the National Party, a third party that was just as obscure as they come today, and with 127 write-in votes, she remained in the race. But in the end, on election day, she wasn't successful, and she finished third with a fifth of the total vote. After leaving the House and losing her Senate bid, Jeanette remained active in peace efforts both at home, in the States, and around the world. She attended the Women's International Conference for Permanent Peace in Switzerland in 1919 and joined the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. In 1924, she moved to Athens, Georgia, which was closer to Washington, D.C. than Montana, and where she had found that her neighbors were a little more tolerant of her vote against America's entry into the First World War. Here, she designed a one-room house and lived without electricity, running water, or telephone service. As her circle of Georgia acquaintances grew each summer, Jeanette eventually organized a study group on anti-war foreign policy, and by 1928, the group had grown into the Georgia Peace Society. She also worked with various other organizations, but never stayed long. Jeanette hated answering to anyone, and she didn't like when people who had been fighting for less time than she had easily gave up or were satisfied with what she thought were half-solutions. The looming threat of World War II brought Jeanette back to Capitol Hill. She returned to Montana, and in 1940, at the age of 60, she challenged the first-term representative Jacob Thorkelson, an outspoken anti-Semite, in the Republican primary for a seat in the House for Montana's Western District. After winning the primary, Rankin forced former Democratic Representative Jerry Joseph O'Connell in the general election. And on election day, Rankin defeated O'Connell with 54% of the vote. She said, quote, No one will pay attention to me this time. There's nothing unusual about a woman being elected, end quote. Which was in part true. She would not be the lone woman any longer, with six other women joining her on the first day of her term. But people would still be paying attention to her. Jeanette was on the way to a speaking engagement in Detroit on December 4, 1941, when she learned that the Japanese military had attacked the U.S. naval base in Pearl Harbor. She rushed back to Washington the next morning, determined to oppose America's participation in the war. That day, December 8th, after President Roosevelt asked a joint session of Congress to declare war on Japan, the House once again opened debate on America's involvement in a world war. Jeanette repeatedly tried to be recognized so that she could voice her opinion on the matter, but Speaker Sam Rayburn of Texas declared her out of order, and other members of the House called for her to sit down. Others approached her on the floor, trying to convince her to either vote for the war or abstain from voting at all. During the roll call, Jeanette voted no amid a chorus of hisses and boos from her colleagues. On the floor, she stated, As a woman, I can't go to war, and I refuse to send anyone else. The war resolution passed the House 388 to 1. This time, Jeanette had been the only one to vote no, and the isolation had to be terrifying. And as if the internal chaos couldn't be enough, reporters and members of the House immediately crowded around her on the floor of the chamber. She hid from them in a phone booth, and there's actually a pretty famous picture of her using the phone to call up to security so she could be escorted back to her office. 
Friends and relatives reached out to her with concern and disappointment. Her brother Wellington called and said, Montana is 110% against you. And publicly, she told her constituents and the press that she had voted her convictions and upheld her campaign pledges. But in private, she told friends, I have nothing left but my integrity. Having already shown her nation the stance on the matter, Jeanette voted present two days later when the House declared war on Germany and Italy, and it became quickly apparent to her that her colleagues and the press were going to simply ignore her and anything else she had to say for the time being. In the remainder of her term, Jeanette limited herself to issues of wartime fraud and the protection of free speech, and she did not run for re-election in 1942. In her retirement, Jeanette did not feel the most welcome in Montana, and instead chose to maintain her Georgia residency while devoting herself to pacifism and traveling. She eventually resumed speaking engagements and became concerned that America was exploiting underdeveloped countries overseas. Inspired by the nonviolent tactics of Mohandas K. Gandhi, Jeanette traveled abroad, including to India to visit Gandhi's final ashram and visiting the country's prime minister. During the war in Vietnam in January of 1968, she led the Jeanette Rankin Brigade, a 5,000-person protest march on Washington, where she presented a peace petition to the House Speaker John W. McCormick of Massachusetts. And in 1970, the House celebrated her 90th birthday with a reception and a dinner. Famously never satisfied, Jeanette was considering another run for the House to protest the Vietnam War when she passed in her home on May 18, 1973, just a few weeks shy of her 93rd birthday. I think for me, if two themes stand out about Jeanette's story, it's to never stop fighting and to always stand firm for what you believe in. Even whenever it made her the most unpopular person in the room, the most unpopular person in the country, the most unpopular person in her family, Jeanette always did what she felt was right. She never stopped standing up for what she believed in. She never stopped fighting to see the world believe in what she believed in. And while most people may only know her as the first woman in Congress or as the only person in U.S. history to vote against both world wars, Jeanette Rankin was also a tireless activist who worked to expand voting rights for women, to ensure better working conditions across America, and to improve health care for women and children. And ultimately, she forged the path that so many of us benefit and take for granted today. But I think she knew this, saying in 1917, quote, I may be the first woman member of Congress, but I won't be the last, end quote. Ooh-wee! Happy International Women's Day, everybody. I hope that's got you jazzed. It's got me jazzed. I'm excited. I'm, Man, I feel like a woman. Just shimmying and shaking over here. Y'all can't see, but that's fine. You don't need to. I hope you enjoyed that episode. That was a lot of fun. As I mentioned on last week's episode, I have a little uh, video slash recommendation tab story highlight i learned the word for it on instagram so if you are interested in learning more about jeanette rankin or if you're interested in learning more about anything that i talk about on the podcast go ahead and head over to instagram check out the story highlight happy international women's day once again happy women's history month we're gonna dig into some other badass ladies from history this month because I'm a feminist, and I am entirely unapologetic about it, and if you don't like that, go somewhere else. Sorry. Not sorry. At all. Not in the slightest. Anyway, (laughs) thank you so much for joining me this week, guys, and I hope you'll join me next week in the pursuit to know a little bit about everything. Please like, share, comment, and follow the pod, and most of all, stay safe out there, guys. Until next week, thanks. Oh, 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 oh,